Thank you for joining me on episode 14 of Between the Levees. I have today a guest who operated LaGrange Lock and Dam uh, for a number of years. Uh, I have Mr. Randy Mays here. He is a retired lock operator and entrepreneur. I assume he has more than that. We'll get into that. Mr. Randy, thank you for joining me. Fine. Glad to be here. All right. Tell me, let's start at the beginning. Where were you born, sir? Born in Lamar, Missouri in 1952. Okay. What were your, uh, your, what were your parents do for a living at the time? Uh, my mom was a homemaker, uh, mostly. She did work for a company called uh, Big Smith, I think it was, and they made blue jeans there in a factory in Lamar. My dad was a salesman all of his life. Um, as soon as he got out of the army, he started into sales. Uh, when I was a little kid, he was selling fire extinguishers door to door. Must have been tough. But uh, we moved out of Lamar, Missouri to Louisiana, Missouri. And we moved there because he got a door to door bread route. So he would go to uh, Bowling Green, Missouri every Monday, meet a bread truck that came out of Kansas City. Uh, he would fill his truck up with uh, pies and bread and uh, dinner rolls, things like that. And then he would hit the road around Louisiana, going door to door selling this product. And what he didn't have left on Saturday morning, he'd hit the road and everything was half price. And he got rid of his truckload every week. I look sure. back kind of amazed, but that's the way I made a living for, for uh, his wife and three kids. What did he do in the army? Uh, he was a mortar man, part of a three-man team uh, on an 81 millimeter mortar. Um, he would carry the barrel from point A to point B to set it up again, while one of the guys carried the base and another guy carried the tripod and the siding system. And then once they had it all set up, then he was loading mortar shells into the barrel as fast as he could. Was, was he overseas during World War II? He was. He uh, went into the Army when he was 17. Uh, didn't go very far at first. Went to Fort Leonard Wood for his basic training. And then he went to the Pacific and joined in with a very experienced group who had seen battle, needed some replacements. And he stayed with them all the way through uh, the end of the war. He ended up on the invasion of Luzon and went in there and they took the Philippines over while they were getting ready then to make the invasion on Japan. The two uh, atom bombs were dropped. Uh, Japan surrendered. Uh, Dad went to Japan and um, drove for a lieutenant whose job was to drive around the countryside getting a list of the names of all the people that were in charge, trying to keep some continuity in the trade over between their government and what the United States was gonna do then. Right. For a couple of months, came home. He was done. Sure. And uh, had he met your your mother before then? Uh, he may have met her. They were cousins. Okay. I, <laughs> I was waiting for the eyebrows to come up. They were distant cousins. I think they had met. Uh, they lived in towns about six miles apart. Okay. And wasn't long after he was home, and they met. And it wasn't long then until... Uh, because my mom was too young to get married in Missouri, they loaded into the Model T <laughs> and ran to Kansas, uh, Girard, Kansas. And when they went to the first preacher, my mom told them how old she was. And they said, I can't marry you. You're not old enough here either. 
So they took off and headed for the next preacher. And dad looked at mom and he said, don't tell him you're 17 this time. Tell him you're 18. Preacher said, okay, I'll marry you. Let's go to the church and we'll do it. Well, that car only had two seats. So the preacher sat and my, the preacher is a very little guy. He sat on my mom's lap while they drove to the church to get married. And they got married and that was the start. What year would that have been? Oh my gosh. Uh, my older brother was born in uh, 48. So I'd imagine it was probably uh, 47. He'd only been home from the war for a year, year and a half. Okay. And he was in, into sales immediately thereafter? He did. Yeah. That's all, that's all that I've ever known that he did. The only other thing I know was a two-week period between sales jobs and um, kind of a good example of us, to us and just to keep money coming in, he went and unloaded boxcars for two weeks. Okay. And uh, the day that ended, the next day he went to work for Hershey Chocolate. Now, his last sales job that he was in was with Hershey Chocolate Corporation out of Pennsylvania, and he did an excellent job. He was at a sales route, which covered about two-thirds of Illinois, a little bit of uh, Missouri, a little bit of Indiana. And uh, he, he was the best salesman they had for a couple of years running right before he retired. And so he was somebody to look at and go, yeah, that's the way it's supposed to be done. How long did he do that? Oh, he started that probably, I'm going to say he was in it probably for 22, 24 years, retired from Hershey and hung around for another, I would say probably 10, 12 years before he passed. So he was a good example to all three of us boys. Sure. All right. So what are your siblings up to? My older brother's retired. He was a uh, Navy fighter pilot for six really? years. Then he got out and pretty much immediately went to work for Delta Airlines, worked for them until he retired when he was about, I think he was about 58, uh, maybe 60. I'm not sure. Um, retired from them and he hasn't worked a full-time steady job since then, but he's a creator. He's an artist. And uh, so he does a lot of uh, glass carving. Okay. And he his area of interest is in orchids. And so he, he does very well. He's very good at it. He's had uh, items in shows at the, or in exhibitions at the Smithsonian. And uh, so along with carving, he has a couple of greenhouses where he grows orchids. Okay. Uh, my little brother works for Delta now. He's been with Delta about 45 years. And he runs a, um, I want to say Sky Club, but that's the old name of the uh, hospitality room that, delta has um he runs one in raleigh durham north carolina okay be retiring here in a year or two both of them are married and uh both of them are pretty good guys good deal did uh, did your older brother serve in vietnam uh no um he he was in the vietnam era he was in the navy while i was in the air force during the vietnam era Neither one of us went to Vietnam. He, uh, right out of his basic flying training, they wanted to hold him back as an instructor. And so they did that, and he knew that that was going to slow his progression into bigger and better fighters and things like that. So 
made some kind of a deal with him where if he did stay back as an instructor for one or two years, then when he got out, he would have his choice of assignments. So he went to Virginia Beach and he was a ferry pilot. He would pick up any kind of airplane or jet here or there, carry it around the or fly it around the country, deliver it, pick up something new there, take it back to a uh, a base for repair. And he's just all over the place in uh, Central and America and in the United States. So okay. he probably flew 15 or 20 different type of airplanes. And what did you do in the Air Force? What did I do in the Air Force? I was an analyst on aircraft and missile maintenance. Uh, my job was to look at uh, maintenance records and look for trends in parts failures and things like that. We did some publications each month. And it wasn't a very exciting job. If I had had to pick a job for myself, especially because I was kind of poor in math in school, I wouldn't have picked that job, but they didn't allow me to pick the job for myself. Right. Um, always had good people to work with. I stationed in McCord Air Force Base in Washington State. Um, our office was right on the transient aircraft flight land, so I got to see all kinds of airplanes coming and going to Vietnam. I've always enjoyed airplanes. Uh, went from there down to Florida to a air rescue wing, which uh, was very interesting. I was uh, my office was right in the hangar. We had HH fifty three Jolly Green Giants and um, C one thirties of different types. We could refuel our air, our helicopters with our one thirties. We could pick people off the ground as we flew along in our one thirties, which really. Was Bolton recovery system. You set okay. him up first on the ground up in a suit with a thousand little rubber bands coming off of him. And then you'd fly the C-130 along and you'd clip into the line right between two rubber balls. And when you clip into that line, this guy would go straight up off the ground, arc out over the plane, and then come back and you'd reel him in the back of the plane. If anybody right? movie Green Berets, they did that one time in the movie Green Berets. Okay. Did you attend college before uh, going to the military? No. I attended, uh, I probably got a year, year and a half of college altogether in Tacoma when I was stationed there and down in uh, at Eglin Air Force Base in Fulton Beach when I was stationed there. Okay. That's really college that I got. Were you, uh, you said you weren't good at math. Were you drawn to anything growing up academically? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm afraid I wasn't. They always, the report always came back after the test, doesn't apply himself. I didn't know how to apply myself, I guess. Yeah. Uh, graduation was kind of a tenuous situation. They said, we're going to give you the folder that's got your graduation diploma in it. Now, if you didn't graduate, we're still going to give you that folder, but there may not be a diploma in it. So I went up on the stage to hand me the diploma. I went back and I sat down and I very slowly and very carefully opened up that folder. And I thought, holy cow, I made it. So yeah, I graduated from high school. Gotcha. All right. So getting out of the Air Force, uh, where did your career take you? I assume you met you met a lady along the way? Um, yes, I did. I'm trying to think. Oh, between uh between being stationed in Washington State and going in Florida. I uh, became um, acquainted again with a girl that I had known when she was seven years old. And uh, we got married within six or eight months. And um, 
when we left Florida, we went to Montana to Malmstrom Air Force Base. It was a Minuteman missile base. And uh, she joined the Air Force then um, just because she got tired of looking for jobs when she, as we would move. Right. Joined the Air Force. She got out of basic training, went to tech school. They said she doesn't need tech school. And she came back then to Great Falls, Malmstrom, and she became the uh, the wing's secretary, executive secretary for the wing commander. Okay. Um, we stayed together the whole time. She was in the Air Force. She got pregnant with our first child. Then she got out of the Air Force. Then I got out of the Air Force after eight years. And I think it was 87. We got divorced. And I sold a couple of businesses and moved in, her and the children back to Illinois. And then a few months later, I moved back. And so that put us in Illinois. What businesses were you into that you were able to sell at that point? I had a construction business out there. It was kind of a specialty business. We worked on bad foundations on houses. Okay. Falls, Montana, they have a very expansive clay soil that just four houses up. And so we had a lot of business with that. Then I had another business because of the soils again, tearing up drywall in houses. I had another business where uh, all we did was repair drywall in homes. And both of them pretty good businesses and both of them I was able to sell and uh, got out of town. Roger that. What are your, uh, what are your children up to? Uh, I've got two daughters in Chicago area. I've got two stepdaughters out in California area. And I've got a son that lives on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. The two daughters up uh, in Chicago, the oldest one is number two or number three position on the second largest uh, nonprofit organization in the United States called okay. Feed the World, I think is the name of it. You're tied in with almost every um, food pantry in the country. Uh, my youngest daughter runs a division of a major, I think it's the number one home building company in the United States, uh, has two daughters and lives up in the Chicago area. Uh, the two girls out in California, one of them is uh, a manager in the finance industry, and the other one uh, works for one of the largest heating and plumbing companies out in San Diego. And uh, as far as I understand, she runs all of the parts purchasing for them. So all four of those ladies have very good jobs. My son has, uh, kind of like me, he uh, has a bit of a hard time getting hooked up on something, staying with it, just because he likes to do things he enjoys, and he does. Uh, he ran on a towboat here in the United States for a short while and has done some other things. He worked with the park service, the federal park service up in Glacier National Park for several years. And uh, he has been a wildland forced firefighter probably for 15 or 18 years now. And right now as a permanent job, he uh, works as a deckhand on uh, the British Columbia ferry boat system. And he works off of a three island area up off of on the inland pass uh, off of Vancouver. So that's the five children. 
Okay. That's like quite the array of, uh, of things. Um, it is. <laughs> what led you into the Inland River industry and into the Grange Lock and Dam? Well, initially it was uh, just me being mesmerized with the uh, boats, barges on the rivers. When I was three years old, we lived in Louisiana, Missouri, right next to the river. And every day my mom would put my little brother in a stroller and I would walk along and we'd walk up to the top of uh, Cemetery Hill in Louisiana. And from there we could see probably 20 miles upstream on the Mississippi. And we could see all the way downstream another 10 miles probably to uh, the Lock and Dam at Clarksville, Illinois. Uh, loved going, getting to the top of that hill and seeing if there's anything coming or going. On weekends, because my dad did run a bread route, we didn't have much money. Our weekend excitement was to get in the car, drive to Clarksville. Halfway down, there was a, a natural spring that came out of the side of the hill, and we'd wash the car there. Then we'd go down and spend a couple hours in Clarksville, and it always meant spending some time at the Lock and Dam. And at that time, anybody could walk right up to the railing by the pit and watch the uh, boats locking through. Uh, I left all that when I went in the Air Force and didn't get back to really enjoying that until, oh, 88, 89, after I'd moved back to Illinois. And then it became a real drive for me to go to the river and uh, whether it be the Illinois, which was closer to where I lived, or the Mississippi, <clears throat> and uh, just see if I could find some toes going down the river, check them out. And it was very specific for me to know about them as far as how big they were, how long they were, this and that, and wasn't a lot of people out there that could give me that information. But um, from there, I just started making rather crude models of boats and barges. Uh, mostly barges. Boats are hard to make. Um, I did get to the point where I was creating a 1 300th scale 15 barge tow and sold a few of those. And that included making the models for eight or 10 different barges, making rubber molds so I could cast those, and then uh, models and molds for boats. Uh, I would put all that on a 52-inch long oak base with a fiberglass or plexiglass cover over it, and that was my first venture, and they they sold real well, but it was too hard, too much work, and didn't get enough units out quick enough, so I didn't do that very long. From there, I decided one evening that I wanted to make a, a, a keychain and I wanted to make the uh, the piece on it as a small barge. So right. I created and then made a mold and cast this small barge out of resin. And I thought, well, that looks pretty good. But then I realized that if I could make 14 more of those in a boat, I'd actually have a toy. So I made models for, in the end, about 23 or 24 different barges and six different boats. Uh, the problem was how you put them all together and play with them. And I realized that if I took a plastic mat and put pins on it, I could drill holes to the bottom of the barges and set everything up as toes and push around the carpet. So I did that from 94 until 2004, 10 years. Okay. And in that 10 years, 
um, I cast over a million pieces and it was those pieces all went together to make over 35,000 boats and a quarter of a million barges that I sold as the toy sets. So what, what was the process of actually making those? Well, initially I would just take a, a one by 10, whatever it would I wanted and create the small models. Very, I've always enjoyed model making. It was very fine work, some of it, on uh, some of the later birds, especially had a lot of detail to them. And I would make the model, and then I would use RTV rubber, which is room temperature vulcanizing. In other words, once you mix it up, you don't have to heat it to get it to cure anything else. Just pour it around your model, let it set for three days, take your model out, and you've got a void, then you can pour resin in. And I had enough moles by 2004, when I sold that, I had probably had a hundred different moles sitting around and I had enough moles where I could start in the morning and make 700 individual barges in a day. Really? The only thing then had to be sanded and the two holes drilled in them, they were ready to go in a kit. I had uh, three or four Amish ladies that I had met for chance down in Missouri that were sewing the drawstring bags that those all went into and they made 30, 35,000 drawstring bags. So that's that's how that went. I It pretty much sold itself. I took 100 sets shortly after I'd started down to St. Louis to a National, Waters Con National Waterways Conference meeting. And uh, I sold the 100, 100 sets, even though they were six barge toes. I had the barges. I had the mats to put them on. I had the drawstring bags, but I didn't have any boats. I hadn't got that far yet. All I had was a sample to show them. This is what the boat's going to look like. And I sold all hundred of those sets down there in two days with the promise that I would send them all their boats later. Right. Met some really good people and had a lot of fun. And that moved more recently into concrete castings, I believe. Well, there was a couple of, uh, couple of stages between there. In 2004, I sold the uh, toys to a group out of Louisville, and they continued to make them. Um, I left the Corps of Engineers. I had joined, I joined the Corps in 2000, so I still owned the, uh, the toy boats, but they weren't paying all the bills. And I was riding with my son one day, who did a lot of work with me on the uh, toys, we were riding up to Ottawa, Illinois to jump on a boat up there and just ride with them for two or three days, which I did quite a bit of back then before the trick cards came out. You get on a boat pretty easy. And I had the approval from one of the VPs over ACBL that I could just pretty much get on one of their boats anytime I wanted. So we were heading up there and we got to talking. And I said, you know what I should do is I should get a job with the Corps of Engineers. Then they could pay me to watch barges and boats and I could still sell the toys. And it was kind of amazing how it worked out. Within a month, I was working at LaGrange Lock and Dam as a lockman on the river. That was the start of, of that career that went in a couple of other ways. But I came up with another idea, which I have once or twice. And I came up with something that's going to make me a millionaire. So I sold the toy company. And then I left the Corps of Engineers. And then I put all my money and a little bit more money into something that 
didn't quite jump off the ground and we didn't quite sell enough to get our money back. And I went back into construction, did that for two or three years. And I thought, well, when I left the Corps of Engineers, my boss at the time, actually he was the assistant lockmaster at the time. He said, if you ever want to come back, give me a call. So I gave him a call one day and said, I think I want to come back. He said, well, let's meet for lunch tomorrow. So we met together for lunch the next day. We talked, and within three weeks, I was working back at LaGrange Lock and Dam again and finished out my career there. So that, that left me still wanting to do something with the boats, and I started drawing boats on uh, Adobe Illustrator and got better and better, showed some people some boats, got more work, and in the end, I've drawn over a hundred boats and they're quite detailed drawings, uh, sold a lot of them. And probably the best thing that happened to me in that area was shortly after I started drawing the boats, I took some boats down to St. Louis to another waterways meeting. And I got um, several interested comments down there out of Chesterfield, Missouri, uh, Mark Canoy called me and he ordered well over 1,200 framed prints to be delivered to all the people that worked for, I want to say AEP. Who was it that had, uh, that went together with AEP? It was Mark Canoy with AEP, but he went to ACBL. Yeah, but Mark was uh, with MIMCO at the time. He was right. president of MIMCO right. and then AEP. When they got ready to buy out AEP, no, excuse me. They got ready to buy out B&H Towing out of Paducah. Um, and they were coming up with a new line of uh, boats. I think there were 6,000 or 6,200 horsepower boats. Uh, the first one was the uh, AEP Mariner. He wanted to do something special to recognize that. So he had me do the 1,200 prints. So I did the drawing first of the boat, which was still being built down at Homa. I did, uh, we got those printed. Um, we cleared everything out of our house to set up a production shop there under the um, promise to my wife that when I was done, I would buy all new carpet for the house before we brought the furniture back in. But we had two semi loads of foam core for mounting the prints, frames, uh, packaging material, cardboard boxes. So that was a, probably a five month process. Uh, and I, so that was part of the print, uh, the drawing of the boats, which I continue to do. Um, then several years back, I started making collector smokestacks. These are small smokestacks. There's two sizes. The smaller ones are about an inch and three quarters. The bigger one's about three and a half. And it's just something small for the guys to collect. If they've worked for five companies, they can get five little smokestacks and set them on a shelf. And to date, I make those for about 170 different companies, both brown water and blue water. Okay. Um, still do that. I have sold quite a few recently. Had a, had a good fall season here with those. And from there, I kind of slowed down, laid off. I was working back with the Corps, got retired from them. I wanted to say thank you to a lot of the people in the industry, or some of the people in the industry who had dealt with me throughout the years both on uh, selling the toys to them. I had several companies that ordered hundreds of sets of the toys from me. 
um, had several companies like Memco and Mark Canoy that had ordered a lot of prints from me. I wanted to come up with something just to say thanks. So there's a guy who lives south of me about 30 miles that has a company that makes concrete lawn ornaments. And so I got a hold of him one time and I said, or one day about a year ago now, and I said, if I made a boat, could you turn that into a lawn ornament? And so he said, well, let me see some drawings. I gave him some drawings. He said, sure. So I made the first boat and what I was going to, I said, all I want is about two dozen of these. So I know I'll, you know, I'll pay you for the mold. He, I said, I just want two dozen of these. That's I want to give them to friends in the industry. And I want to give them to companies that I've dealt with just to say, thanks. Kind of as my, all right, folks, I'm done. Here you go. He said, I'm not going to charge you for the mold. I said, you're not. He said, no. He said, I think you'll sell more than, or he said, I think you'll need more than two dozen of these. I said, okay. So he made the mold while we're on vacation. He cast the first piece, sent it to a picture to me. He said, I think we're in business. And um, so it's, it's a one-man show on my end, except for him. And he's got 12 people working for him down there sometimes. But they do all of the casting down there. So all I do is take the truck and the trailer down there, fill it up with, with boats and barges now, and take off delivering them. So that's how that got started. Do they make those to order, or do they make bulk uh, options that you cart around and sell? Um, since they started, the first pieces came off in April, I think it was. And since they've started up until just recently, all they've done is cast as many as they can, as fast as they can, and I've taken them all. Um, they have people come in there to their shop and the grounds where they've got probably an acre of concrete pieces laying around for sale. People see them, they want to buy them, say, no, you can't. Well, the one guy gets these, he's, he's got them all sold. And when I leave to go on a trip, normally, I've got 70 to 85 pieces of concrete and they're all pre-sold before I leave the house. So we've got a, a boat and two barges, excuse me, a boat and four barges in production now, plus a set of buoys. And during the next year, I'll probably add at least two more boats to that and up to maybe seven different barges. So Okay. Now I'm thoroughly, working on that. thoroughly enjoying watching it all develop on Facebook. Uh, tell me what you can about your career with the Army Corps of Engineers from start to, to retirement. Well, I went to work there uh, as a, it wasn't a full-time position, but I worked full-time. And we had the uh, union leader for the our core district, worked at our locking dam as a lockman. He was gone so much, they needed somebody to fill his shifts most of the time. So that's why they brought me in. And uh, so they, they teach how to lock boats. That goes pretty quick. You're always learning after that, but the initial process is pretty quick. And when they're done with that, at the time, we were one of the few places on any river that was still running steam on the river. We had a steamboat at LaGrange. They had a steamboat up at uh, Peoria. Uh, they were boats that were made just to work on our wicket dam. We've got a wicket dam there and wicket dam at Peoria. 109 individual sections, four feet wide, that we could drop to the bottom of the river or pick up depending on what the water was. And when we dropped in the bottom of the river, the tows, the boats and the barges would go right over um, the top of the dam. 
So it's quite an active process, keeping things stable there and 20 wickets up, 20 wickets down, all up, all down, whatever. So that boat was a steamboat still, years and years old. And they taught us how to run it first. So I started out running steam on that, always with the fear that we had been promised that this steamboat would be gone by now. They were building us a new boat up on the Great Lakes to take its place. And so because the Corps thought it would be gone any day, which by the way, wasn't until six years later, they never did test the boiler. We never did treat the water that we were taking straight out of the river and putting into our boiler. So we all knew that the history of steam boilers is that you treat them right or they treat you wrong. And so we were always concerned that we're gonna go out there and fire this thing up someday and it's just gonna explode us. So got to know that. We had a small uh, small boat that was built down in Alton, Illinois at Alton Boat Works. And that was the tug that we would actually push our steam maneuver boat around with. So then I got to running it. And all the time locking, but running the boats whenever they needed it. When I retired, I came back, they had a new, had a new diesel powered maneuver boat for the dam. So that was nice. Still had the same small tug. So I stepped back right into that locking and running the tug and running the boat wasn't quite as exciting anymore since we didn't have steam anymore. Pretty soon we got a 50 foot tug out of uh, the Dubuque area. And so started running that. Ran that quite a bit. Did some instructing on it for new guys. Um, and in 2000, this is 22, I'm going to say about 2018 probably. Uh, I had my time and my eight years in the Air Force, put it all together and retired. And that was the end of that, I thought. Three months later, I was working for the Corps of Engineers again at LaGrange Lock and Dam. We were doing a major overhaul on the on the lock and dam there. And uh, so they wanted to ask if I would come back and run just a very small part of that show. And so I went back on a two-year contract. And when that two years was over, I walked away and I was really ready to retire that time. So that was good. Sure. And you're staying busy enough, I think, with your loan ornament business there, huh? I do. Yeah. Um, We've got a uh, about four and a half acre piece of property here that my wife does a lot of work on keeping up and I help her with it some and we're always changing and doing something to it. Uh, travel, we like to travel a bit and uh, see the kids and see the country. So that keeps us going. Without a doubt, sir. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to share? Any other, any other interesting hobbies? Um. I enjoy flying. I've always enjoyed airplanes. I enjoy flying. I've uh, got about 600 hours of flying in. When I left the Air Force, I was doing some quite a bit of artwork. And a lot of it had to do with aviation. And I was asked to join the Air Force Artists Association. And that was a that was a group that went around the country to different bases, doing drawings, paintings of situations, most of them aircraft. And a lot of it had to do with anniversaries, 
uh, new aircraft coming out and things like that. So I, it didn't take up a lot of my time, but I did several pieces for them that are in, in several different places. Uh, I did the, the space shuttle, uh, a painting of the space shuttle, um, several drawings of different aircraft and quite a few paintings uh, for different anniversaries. I did the painting, the initial painting, or the, excuse me, the official painting for the 25th anniversary for the Minuteman missile system. Okay. So that was nice. And if it was a flying unit, then I always got to uh, fly in whatever aircraft they were flying. So that's nice. I've, I've, uh, I have flown in refuelers, refueling planes over Nebraska. We refueled the Thunderbirds over Nebraska one day and I've, uh, flew in, uh, Cargo planes, helicopters, bombers. Flew with my brother in a Navy plane one time. He stopped by in Great Falls on his way to deliver a plane. He said, if you can get a flight suit tomorrow, we'll go for a ride. So I found a flight suit. The next day we went for a nice ride. Uh, P-51, I've flown a P-51, which was nice, and an F-4. So two of the best fighters that are ever built I have flown. Uh, just when I say flown, I mean just to take the controls for a few minutes and and steer it around the sky that they made sure was clear. Right. So I enjoyed it. Yeah. Was other than those two, were there anything else uh, that you especially enjoyed flying in or being a part of? I had my I had my own plane with a friend for several years. It was a good. It was a Cessna 182, and it was a a good flying plane. It, I was living in the mountains in Montana at the time, and it could get me out of pretty much any airstrip, no matter how high we were and how much fuel I had on. It had, it had some power. And there was a period over about eight months, probably, that I flew to work every day uh, from Great Falls north to Shelby, Montana, and then Great Falls north to Conrad, Montana. There's a big belt of nothing but wheat uh, and barley. And so I had a contract with the Burlington Northern Railroad system at the time to uh, build the foundations for grain terminals when uh, they went to run all unit trains up there. So I would fly to work in the morning with three guys and we'd get out and meet the rest of our crew that had stayed in motels and we would um, work all day and I'd fly home every night. So that was nice. And I think that's probably my most enjoyable times was having that plane and being able to fly it. So that was during the construction business era? Yes. Yep. How long did you run that one? Well, I started as a sideline down in Florida when I was stationed in the Air Force down there in uh, 73. I left Montana in 87, sold the two of the sideline businesses in 87, came to Illinois, went right into Illinois, excuse me, went right back into construction. Um and did that until I went to work for the Corps um, in 2000, then did it again from 2004 or 2006 after the, the business that I left the Corps for had dropped off, did it for another four years and went back to work for the Corps. And as soon as we got moved, as soon as I got back in this area, then we started building the house we live in. So that's another two year process. So I've done a lot of construction, done a lot of construction. Sure. Well, that kind of runs me out of questions, man. You've uh, you're making me <laughs> tired just thinking about your 
everything you've done? Well, if I could, uh, you asked about the airplane a while ago, and I'll tell you, one of the uh, one of the most exciting things I ever did with that is I flew inside a volcano one day in my plane, an active volcano, and that. I'm listening. I'm listening. That was uh, after Mount St. Helens had blown up. And I had taken a man over to Yakima, Washington in my plane for a meeting. And on the second day there, we got to talking and I said, well, I want to fly over and take a look at the volcano. Now, this would have been in, I think, probably January after it had blown up in maybe April. Not sure exactly. And so the guy that went with me says, well, I want to go too. And there were two other people said, I want to go with you. Said, well, all right, let's load up and go. So I checked everything out. At the time, there were no absolute restrictions on how close you could get to the volcano. There was a suggested limit for altitude and for distance away from the top. So the four of us got the plane, we took off and we flew out there. And we flew over the volcano at the suggested altitude, and then we flew by it at the suggested distance away. We got a good look at it, amazing to see. And so I turned, headed back for Yakima, and I'm flying along, and I looked at the other guys and said, you know, guys, we're only going to be here once, probably. I said, let's take a boat. Who wants to fly into the volcano? And they go, oh, yeah, shoot, yes, let's fly into the volcano. So the man of sat in the front seat with me, he had a video camera and he was taking video of all this the whole time. He was kind of queasy about flying. And so I turned around ahead for the volcano and on the eastern side of the volcano, there was a notch in the rim, probably went down 200 feet. And so I just aimed for that notch. And as we're getting closer, he goes, I'm getting sicker. Oh, I'm getting sick. And I said, don't you throw up in my airplane. Oh, man, I'm getting sick. I said, don't throw up. And so I looked at him. I said, throw up in your camera bag. He looked at me, and he dumped all of his camera stuff on the floor. And as we're flying through that gap in the mountains, he's sitting over there hurling. Mm. So as soon as we got through, I pulled back all the power and dropped all the flaps. And we're now we're just kind of floating. And we made a circle around the cone, which had regrown now probably three or 400 feet in that nine months and just made a circle around it. And anybody that's ever seen anything about Mount St. Helens knows that the whole north side just blew out. So I just made a circle around it and flew out the north side like I was flying out of valley. And <laughs> we smelled the sulfur uh, from the uh, volcano and everything. And so that was one of my best events in, a, uh, in my plane. Without a doubt, man. All right. <laughs> well, I do appreciate your time, sir. You bet. Thanks a lot. Give me this opportunity. Yes, sir. Take care. Talk to you later. All right.